welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litson. Before we get to today's episode, I just want to remind everyone that the Women in Physical Therapy Summit, we're in our fourth year, and this year it takes place September 27th to the 28th in Portland, Oregon at the lovely Jupiter Hotel. And if you want to learn more about it and get tickets, you can go to womeninpt.com. And the early bird pricing ends at the end of this month. So if you want to see our keynote speaker, Dr. Claire Ardern, we have Carolyn Baxter, Tavana Boggs, Meredith Caston, Shante Cofield, a.k.a. The Movement Maestro, Jen Esker, Alicia Feely, Colleen Fogarty, Chris Johnson, Eric Mira, Ali Shoes, Ellie Summers, Jennifer Hutton, Nicole Kozian, plus myself and Erica Mello will all be there. We're going to be speaking on topics from burnout uh, different p- power talks, which are a version of a TED Talk. We have a panel on women uh, supporting women. We've got a social media panel and a PR for PTs panel, as well as a women in sport panel. So again, go to womeninpt.com, get your early bird ticket. It ends August 31st, the early bird pricing. And you want to get those tickets before it sells out. So I hope to see everyone in Portland. All right, on to today's episode. Really great episode with Dr. Everett Verhagen. He is a human movement scientist and epidemiologist. He holds a university research chair as a full professor at the Department of Public and Occupational Health of the VU University Medical Center and the Amsterdam Movement Science Research Institute. He chairs the department's research theme, Sports, Lifestyle, and Health is the director of the Amsterdam Collaboration on Health and Safety in Sport and co-director of the Amsterdam Institute of Sports Sciences. His research revolves around prevention of sports and physical activity-related injuries, including monitoring cost-effectiveness and implementation issues. He supervises several international PhDs and postdocs on these topics and has co-authored over 200 peer-reviewed publications around these topics. So today, we're talking about not quantitative research, but qualitative research. What's the difference? How qualitative research influences sports medicine and injury prevention research and clinical practice. How to design a qualitative research study and control for biases. And what's in store for the future of qualitative research in sports medicine. This is a great episode. If anyone out there is wondering what is exactly qualitative research, this will take care of that. So a huge thank you to Everett for coming on the podcast, and everyone enjoy. Hi, Everett. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really happy to, to be here as well. All right. So today we're going to be talking about qualitative research in mainly sports medicine, but before we even start, can you give the listeners the definitions and perhaps the difference between quantitative research and qualitative research. 
Sure, I think that is a really valid question to start with. Um, I believe most people are familiar with quantitative research. Um, it is what we do, like in the word already, quantification of a problem by counting, by, by having numerical data or data that we can transform into statistics. And then we can quantify attitudes, opinions, um, defined variables. Huh? We can generalize that across the whole group um, of our population. So we can get, get generate averages in given populations and we can compare averages between populations. Um, qualitative research on the other hand, doesn't go by numbers, it's more exploratory. And we try to get an understanding of reasons, opinions, uh, motivations. And instead of quantifying a problem, so, so giving a number to it, giving a magnitude to it, we, we get insight into, into the problem. And that helps us to, to develop new ideas, new hypotheses. And that can be a precursor to do a bigger quantitative study in which you have an idea of where to look and, and where you would like to quantify and, and get some more thought. But you can also do it afterwards um, where you have a, a quantifiable outcome and you want to understand better what that outcome actually means and what it means to your population and in your population. I think that is, uh, that is in essence the big difference. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and now you have had over 200 peer-reviewed mm -hmm articles in different journals, and you yourself have done a lot of quantitative research. So why this shift now for you into more qualitative research? It's not the first time I get asked that question. Um, I'm a trained quantitative researcher. I'm an epidemiologist. I'm a human movement scientist. So I kind of live and swear by numbers. If I can't measure it for me, it shouldn't count. Um, mm -hmm. That's what many people think. My opinion though is, and I learned that through the years, if you can count it, um, it still doesn't mean anything. It still needs to have a meaning. So a difference between two groups in a trial, it just gives you the difference between the groups in a trial. It doesn't tell you how the individuals within that trial actually experienced it. Um, the same with trying to get, a, get your head around an injury problem. So you can capture an injury problem in incidences, in prevalences, in severity, in numbers of days lost, availability during games. But what does it actually mean for the individual athlete? Uh, what does it mean for the patient? And the same maybe with treatment outcomes, rehabilitation outcomes. It's nice to know that you, know, you reach a certain degree of range of motion after rehabilitation or reduce level of pain on a visual analog scale. But what is actually the opinion of, of that patient? Um, does that actually align with what you can measure? And if not, where does the difference come from? And if you do, it kind of shows you that, that you're in the right direction. And I, I, over the years, I learned that quantitative research only um, can help so much in solving the bigger issues we have, where it concerns uh, prevention, targets for prevention. Um, it stops at your number, and then you need to do something with it. And the only way to do something with it is, is to understand where it comes from and also to understand um, what it means. And that's, where, that's where my interest kind of started. 
Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense coming from myself from the clinical side of things. And I'll use the VAS scale. When you're looking at pain as, let's say, one of those quantitative points, and I think this is a good example, looking at the VAS scale, a four or five for me is a very different experience for someone else with a four or five out of 10 pain, right? Mm -hmm. And so just looking at that number from quantitative research saying, well, this proves that this treatment, whatever it may be, reduced pain by, I don't know, four points on the VAS scale. Well, okay, that's great, but then what does that mean for the individual person and that you're just moving it because qualitative net, it's someone's opinion. This is an opinion of what my pain is. And then we take it to quantitative data, but then it doesn't say how that patient is living with that pain, how, so yeah, the pain has decreased, but I still can't walk to the store. I still can't play with my kids. So what does it mean? Exactly. And I think that letter, what you just said, that is purely qualitative types mm-hmm. of what does it mean? What impact does it have? There's one little, one little thing I would like to specify is that a VAS scale in essence, which is a subjective outcome measure, is still a quantifiable objective measure. It's not qualitative. And that is something I run into every now and then in a discussion where people seem to think that a subjective outcome measure on a scale or a subjective outcome measure in a survey is qualitative. It is not. You like to look behind those measures. So why does someone report a reduction from eight to four on a visual analog scale? Mm -hmm. Um, That is what we're looking at. And um, you're completely right. From eight to four in someone who has a seating job, for instance, mostly behind a computer, means something completely different than someone who moves from eight to four who has a really active job and where four is still really limiting for that. Mm -hmm. And, And... It also goes a little bit further if we may go uh, to athletes, for instance. A pain of four today, in pre-season maybe, or at the end of season when there's no big competitions around, I'm okay, I can skip a training. But a pain of four during competition when there's a big game coming up, you probably will suck it up. And even though the pain level is the same, your experience and the burden it gives you is completely different. And those are the things we do not capture in, in, in numbers. And those are the things that make the big difference for the individuals we, we, we do our research for and in our target population. Yeah, and that actually leads nicely into the next thing I wanted to talk about. And that's how does qualitative research manifest itself in sports medicine or injury prevention? From the research perspective, you mean, or the practical perspective? Uh, let's take research perspective first. Mm-hmm. Okay. On the research perspective, I think it adds a new layer of information to what we already know. And you can think that in, in, in multiple ways. Um, it, it gives you direction to where you would like to go with future research because you understand better your population. You understand their needs, their wishes, their opinions, their fears. Um, you understand um, their foci. And based on that, you can have more targeted either interventions or more targeted outcome measures to to chart a problem or to monitor a problem. So it it will guide quantitative research in that sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
which I would say is also really interesting if you regard the machine learning and the complexity theories that are out there. We can't measure everything, but if we get a sense already based on the public, the population, where we should focus on, it will give direction to those novel technologies where we do data mining and all that. Also, on the other hand, if we do interventions or if we do objective measures of what we try to assess in research, um, we need to find a way to translate that to the population. You know, research, of course, it is about putting it in a nice article and publish it in a high impact journal, if at all possible. But in the end, and, and I'm speaking for myself here, I do research because I want to help people. I do research because I have a general question that I feel is valid to ask in relation to an issue or problem I see in, in athletes. So I want that number to count for athletes as well. And in order to do so, I need to talk to them and get their opinions about how they feel about this number, how they feel they can use it, um, how they feel they may not be able to use it. And based on that, I can develop my next steps and I understand better what I did right, what I did wrong. I understand better what it means actually, because I have my own opinion. Um, and that's why I think qualitative and quantitative are synergetic to each other. Let me give you a clear example, which may be a bridge also to um, more uh, the practical side of it. Maybe that's injury definition. If, if I ask athletes or, or athletes, not athletes, students um, and fellow researchers how they would define an injury, usually they come with the technical definitions we also have in our manuscripts, like it is tissue damage, it leads to pain, that pain may lead to a diminished performance, maybe a limited availability, which is all fine. Now, if you ask athletes, like, when are you injured? The elite athletes will say, well, pain is actually part of the game. I always have pain. I'm used to that and I know how to deal with that. And I will not think this pain is a problem unless my performance is limited, which is already a little bit of a different injury definition. So the problems we, we see and we have in terms of pain and, and, and availability may not even be the problems they perceive to be problems. So we're solving maybe something they don't even see to be an issue. Now, if you translate the same thing to maybe recreational athletes or novice athletes, people who sit on the couch and say, okay, let's be a bit more active. They're not used to pain. They're not used to how their body reacts to physical activity. So we think they have more injuries, but maybe their perception of injuries is simply different from the perception of injuries we see in most of the papers we read. And I think there's a clear clinical message there is that um, perspectives, context, experience of the patient you have in front of you determines their perception of the issue they have, but it also determines for you as a clinician what you need to do and how you need to approach that. Because the numbers you see in the quantifiable manuscripts are all based on averages and not on that one single person in front of you. And, and this is where qualitative research can help a lot to understand that. Yeah, and, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And as a clinician, I think sometimes we can get caught up in the quantitative data and those numbers and lose sight of the person in front of us, meaning... Hmm. 
sometimes we may say, well, I, this, and, and I see this on uh, social media threads and things like that, which I'm sure you've seen as well. Well, this is this study and this is what the study says. So this is what you should be doing with your patient. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of nuances to that because like you said, you're talking about averages and not the person in front of you. Yeah. And, and I love the example you gave, what is an injury? And what does that mean to different stakeholders within, let's say, injury prevention realm, if we will? So the athlete versus the average person versus the clinician. Well, we have three different definitions of what an injury is. Yeah. So how can we fill those gaps to be a little bit closer? I mean, I can say, let's say I'm the average person who's working out. I know I am not anywhere near a professional athlete. But the problem is, and you alluded to it a little bit, is that when people have an injury, they read about an athlete that has an injury and they say, well, this athlete had the injury and they were back at their sport in four weeks. How come I have to wait four months? And I think that's a big disconnect. And maybe that's where getting some some better qualitative research and uh, around these definitions can actually help with the perception of what an injury is across the board. Yeah, it's sort of framing, but it's framing from both sides. It's framing for the patient, so mm-hmm. you can explain them better um, why it takes for them four months instead of four weeks, right? And usually, in all honesty, by the time a professional athlete is already back on the pitch training again, a recreational athlete maybe hasn't even seen True. Therapist. That's true. So how then can you take a protocol or a guideline based on evidence that shows that on average after four to six weeks, you need to be at a certain stage in the rehabilitation phase where that one single person in front of you has already been looking three weeks for for a proper proper therapist to Uh treat the injury. And then they come in and they've seen this evidence, like you said, but then you would like to know a bit better where they come from, what their context is and what they need to do, which is not shown in the evidence, which is also not what the patient thinks about. Um, so having some knowledge about such perceptions and, and where they come from and what they mean, I, I think can really help to support you in your clinical practice to, to use the evidence to a better extent. Um, you know, and some of the issues we have in objective quantifiable research also apply here, I would say. There is, um, for instance, the discussion started a couple of years ago about whether we should screen or not to predict injury, mm-hmm. uh, actually to see if someone's at an increased risk. And one of the main, the main arguments in there is, well, basically what we're doing is we create two normal distributions. A normal distribution is the, the, the Gaussian curve where... We think most of the population is in the middle and we have a few outliers and that is nicely distributed. So we have a normal population with our risk factor and a normal population without our risk factor. And if the averages don't overlap too much, then we have a significant difference. But that negates the outliers on the top side and on the bottom side of both. And then you talk about an average, but there's even equal amount of people who are in that overlapping uh, overlapping phase 
that we still give the average treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we understand better why these people are on the outskirts and why are they in that position, we can actually make that evidence for them work because we can modulate it to their specific situation. Got it. So that that qualitative research, like you said, can help to guide quantitative research, which can then help to guide actual treatment practices for the average clinician. Yeah, I think so. In a very simplified, overly simplified nutshell. Yeah, but I'm glad you did so. (laughs) Yeah, very, very, very oversimplified um, nutshell there. Can you give us an example of what a qualitative research project may look like? Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of what that looks like in its sort of setup phase and then throughout the project? Okay. Well, in essence... It, on paper, it looks a little bit simpler because for quantitative research, you need big groups of people because of those averages. For qualitative research, you need smaller groups. Um, one issue, though, is in case of our specific needs, we would like to have groups that are quite specific. So if we have a group of elite athletes combined with recreational athletes and we want to know perceptions about injury, like we were already talking about, yeah. It doesn't work because we get too many deviating perceptions in there. So you need to you need to frame your research question correctly there. And the the essence here is that you start doing your interviews until you reach so-called saturation. So you do interviews, you get answers, and your next interview will give you a deeper understanding. You get different answers, you get more answers, you can ask a bit further. But at a certain point of time, you start hearing the same thing. So you don't add any new information. That's when you're done. And now, depending on on your group or your specific focus, that can happen between eight to to 15 interviews. So in that sense, it sounds really easy. Then what you need to do is you need to type those interviews out. So you need to transcribe them. And then the analysis starts. And for most people, this is boring, but this is actually where for qualitative researchers, me as a me as a um, a changed person, I like that too. Is you start to go, so you start to read through the interviews and you start to look for cues of what people say and what it might mean. Now, as with statistics, there are several philosophies you can follow. Uh, the different philosophies make a big difference. The same is in qualitative research, but that on the side. Mm-hmm. Where were we? Um, so you were saying that uh, you'll go through this series of interview questions and you keep narrowing those questions down until you reach a saturation point and then you can start the analysis. And exactly. so then my next question was, how do you, what set of statistics do you use to analyze qualitative research? And that might no be a really stupid question. No, 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 no. We don't use statistics. No statistics. And that's not a stupid question because, (laughs) um, you know, there's there's various states in qualitative research. And arguably the most simple way to go is a so-called thematic analysis. So you do your analysis and you start to find themes in, in the interviews by coding. So you have overarching themes and within these overarching themes you find sub themes. 
Um, and you just report those teams. And that is really interesting because, um, for instance, if you're looking for barriers towards implementation of an injury prevention measure, you can say, okay, these are named barriers and these barriers can be categorized as time, as a disinterest or a um, non-belief in the effectiveness. And then within those main categories, you can have subcategories of where that comes from. That's that's. I would say one of the simpler versions of how we can use qualitative research, but you can also make it more intricate. You can build models, um, you can validate models. And for each of those research questions you have, you require a little bit of a different approach. Um, thematic analysis is easy. You just sit down, you have your semi-structured interview, you ask people um, about opinion about a certain topic, they give you an answer, and then basically you say, okay, can you, can you give me an example of that? Um, can you explain that a little bit further? But you already know the topics you're interested in, so you want to talk about barriers or facilitators, so you can focus on that. You can also go open-minded, where you say, okay, I just want to know how um, elite athletes perceive an injury. So you need a different kind of approach. So first, you need you would like to um, make them feel comfortable that they can talk about it, that it's a safe environment. You would like to ask them about their previous injury, so you get a sense of which of those had a high impact, and then you can dive a little bit deeper into. So what what did it mean for you? How did you feel? Um, what were the consequences of it for you personally? Um, um, how did you recover? Did it take longer or shorter than expected? So you, you kind of you kind of follow a story, and that story unfolds itself. And if you do um, if you do really open, then you can do one interview. It gives you direction in your thoughts, and based on that direction in your thoughts, you look for your next participant. And you continue where you were with your previous, and then a bigger story unfolds. Um, and that, that takes a bit more time because you do interview by interview, uh, but it's, it's a lot more deep and rich information. But it all starts with the research question, I would say, and, and it's a different types of research questions that we have in quantitative research. It's not compare this to compare that. It's not how big is this problem, but it's really diving into beliefs. It's diving into opinions. It's diving into reasons. Um, and that can be because of something you did, but that it can also be to understand better what's going on in the minds, minds of people. And as the person, the interviewer within these studies, how do you control for that interviewer's biases? So, you know, the leading questions. So let's say you're doing this long form where you interview someone, you get really in depth, they give you their answers, you go on to the next person. How do you not then guide that next person to kind of be like what the first person said and then the third person like the first and second person? So how do you control for like leading the, because as an interviewer, you can lead the direction of that interview really in any way you want. Exactly. But isn't that the same in quantitative research? The way you frame a question, you can already guide people towards answering yeah. questions. Sure, sure. A really good example I encountered like last year in a project where the premise was that there was a, there was a funding scheme 
And the premise was that uh, projects that were driven by questions from practice would have a preference. So they asked uh, in a particular sport at a particular association to all the members, do you think injury prevention is important? That was the first question in a survey. Of course, everybody says yes. Of course, yeah. And the second question was, if you think it is important, do you feel that uh, an app on an iPhone would be helpful? Yes or no? Of course, many people say yes. So their conclusion was, okay, 80% wants injury prevention and 80% wants that in an app on an iPhone. So we should have a lot of money to develop such an app. Of course, it was a disaster because they finally developed it and they kind of scoped already with the public what they had of an idea um, instead of really have something driven by, by the audience. So I think bias in that sense is not only applicable to qualitative research. Mm -hmm. Subjectivity maybe is because you as an interviewer have an understanding most of the time of what the topic you're interested in. Um, that's why in qualitative research, you will also see a little paragraph on reflection where the interviewer or the authors explain what their background is, where they come from. And of course, it's really hard to take that out of the interviews. Sure. It's practice and it takes a lot of self-control, I can tell you that. Um, and it's not always possible. So that's why you need to be frank up front um, that you're a physical therapist and that you ask questions about physical therapy guidance or physical therapy conduct. And of course, you have an opinion about them. Um, and, and also, of course, it is the, the, the connection between interviewer and interviewee that is important. If you interview someone who thinks you are a prick, you will not get much much out of it. But if you have a good connection with someone and you really are empathic, then they will they will open up and give you some. But that requires experience, I would say. Um, we do have some tricks in the analysis to reduce that. Um, two main tricks that, that may be of interest to say is, uh, we call that triangulation, where you not only interview patients, but you also interview other stakeholders on similar topics. And you try to find connections and similarities between answers. Because if three people from different perspectives say the same thing, that must be something that really counts, right? So it's not one person saying, and it's not just one person interpreting. That's one. And the other one is you can do um, multiple coders. So you have one interviewer, and you need to code the interviews. But you can do that with two people separately, much like we do with systematic reviews where mm -hmm. we try for the quality of papers. We have two independent reviewers and then we compare notes. We can do the same here too. So you take a bit of that subjectivity out and that pre preoccupation out. Yeah, great, thank you for that. And now where do you see the future of qualitative research moving? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Um, for our specific field, mm -hmm. um, I would say there's a lot of ground we have to cover. Um, we're getting there. There's a lot of interest in it at the moment. There's more and more papers being published at the moment. One of the, not issues, but one of the fears I have is that most of these papers still get published in not the mainstream sports medicine literature that is being read by the clinicians, even though the messages are supposed to be targeted at the clinicians. Or the therapist. 
So we need to find ways to grasp that clinical message in such a way that it doesn't become this lengthy qualitative research paper. It becomes a succinct, easy to read paper with a clinical message, though with a constructive, strong methodology. Um, we've been battling with that for a couple of years now, I would say. And, and um, I just got word this morning from one of our PhDs that she got a full qualitative study accepted in British Journal of Sports Medicine. Nice. That's nice because that was a journal that said one and a half, two years ago, we're not interested in qualitative research. Well, I think that whole movement is gaining ground and we're finding ways to communicate our messages that it really is helpful for clinicians and it's readable by, by those journals, which I think are a few big steps we, we have taken. Uh, yeah, I would say they're very huge steps because yeah. if the research is there, but no one's reading it and no one's talking about it, wh where is it going? It doesn't make the research any less meaningful, but it doesn't make it applicable if no one's reading it because exactly. no one can apply it to their populations. But, you know, the truth here is, is it's, it's still quite difficult because if you want to write a manuscript that has the full qualitative method and the traditional version of the outcomes, um, in my opinion, and probably people will be mad when I say that, that's kind of dry to read. It's not really interesting to read. So if you juice that a little bit up, so it becomes interesting and more concise and easy to, to digest for um, the more clinical oriented reader, you use a lot. Of, you lose a lot of information that, for a qualitative reader, is required to assess the validity and the reliability of what you did. So we're kind of in the middle. We need to have sufficient information in there in, in such a paper for the knowing reader that we did right, but it also needs to be toned down to such an extent that for the unknowing reader, it's understandable and they see the method and, and, and understand the clinical meaningfulness of the, of the message. And that is still a bit finding the balance. Um, and I think that is one of the main challenges to do. I will say that as the clinician, I very much appreciate your trying to kind of find that sweet spot between mm. the dryness of what maybe some people would think qualitative or research write-up would be to this applicable, like you said, more juiced up version that a clinician can take and digest very easily. Um, I think there is a space for that, for sure. Um, mm. And I look forward to, I guess, more progress on that end. So it sounds like you're, you're getting there but that there is maybe more work to be done. But I am, there's, I, I am, there's always done. more work to be done. But, you know, I think if you can find a way to blend those and make it digestible and allow clinicians to take this information very readily to their patient populations, then in the end, like you said, you got into research to help people. Hmm. therapists got our clinicians are there to help people so in the end it's hopefully this blending of research and 
clinical care that's there for one reason and to benefit the person in front of us. I believe so, yeah. I believe we can achieve that. Um, I don't think we are there yet. Um, still still finding, finding a direction. But in all honesty, if you look at most journals 10, 15 years ago, even though quantitative research, it was sort of dry, straightforward academic language as well. And we have made big grounds there. And I think we can draw on those experiences and that expertise that has been created there. And, and our field of sports medicine has been in the forefront, I would say. Um, there's some journals who really, really do that really well. Um, and it, it, it does have helped us to, to get this topic under attention. Um, one, other, one other sign that it's, that is gaining the attention I feel it deserves is that for the last two editions, we tried to get it on the program of the IOC Prevention Conference. And this year, for the first time, we got a dedicated symposium on qualitative research in sports injury prevention on the program. So that already shows that in that wealth of proposals they can choose from, ours stood out and, and the, the topic is found interesting at such a platform. So it's now up for us to, to grab this opportunity and, and make this count. Yes, um, it's up to you to deliver deliver on in that uh, focus symposium. And just so people listening, we'll have a link to this, but the um, that's the IOC is the International Olympic Committee's Injury Prevention Conference, which is 20, March of 2020 in Monaco. I don't have the exact dates, but I know it's March. I think it's like the 14th and around there maybe. I'm not 100% sure. Give or take. Give or take. I think it's around there, but we'll have a link to it uh, in the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com if people want to check that out as well. So now, is there, uh, if you could leave the listeners with, um, let's say, a highlight of, of the talk or a highlight, in your opinion, of the importance of qualitative research, what would that be? My highlight would be that Qualitative research gives deeper understanding and deeper meaning to the quantitative evidence we have and to use in daily practice. Perfect. And one more question. I probably should have told you this ahead of time, but I forgot. So I'm going to surprise you're going to surprise you with it. But um, it's a question I ask everyone, and that is knowing where you are now in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to yourself let's say straight out of your graduate program or yeah, let's do that. So maybe even before PhDs happened. So what advice would you give to yourself? 20 years ago. Many years ago. Yes. I would give the advice to just follow your heart and follow wherever your thoughts lead you. Don't plan ahead. That is great advice and so difficult to do. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a planner. Um, that is so hard to do, but I agree. It's I plan advice. next week, but I don't plan two years ahead. I'll see where, where it ends up, what opportunities come by. And up till now, I must say, it hasn't, it hasn't disappointed me. It's worked. Well, that's excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you if they have extra questions. I'm sure you will share my email address. 
I can if you want, or social media. Social media, there's the Twitter account, at David uh-huh. Hagen. Just drop me a line there or a private message. Perfect, yeah. And our research line does have a website, which you probably will post as well. And most of the work we do also on qualitative research uh, will be posted there once it's published with perfect. a short summary. Perfect, perfect. So we will have all of those links for all the listeners. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this great information with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And everyone, uh, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.